Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners and viewers may find the ideas and content expressed, distributing, or objectional. Rotations is pre-recorded in front of a live audience. Hello, everybody. Again, this is Todd Fredericks. I am an associate professor of family medicine now with tenure, which is an awesome thing, at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, not that flatland school we don't talk about in Columbus. That's the other one. Uh, and today I'm talking to an associate professor of emergency medicine at another great institution in Ohio, one that should get a lot of credit, which is University of Cincinnati, uh, a great school and great people, and I can't say enough for them. And we're continuing our discussion about uh, pre-hospital medicine. And Dr. McMullen, Dr. J- J- Jason McMullen, who is um, a prominent pre-hospitalist as well as emergency medicine physician, uh, is talking to us uh, at, on this segment about we're going to get into, well, what's this training look like? And I think we're going to learn an awful lot of good stuff from him today. So, uh, Jason, thank you again. Uh, I'll just lead right in. What is a, what's fellowship training like in pre-hospital medicine? Who, who gets in? I mean, what's it look like? Because I want my students to be able to put together their CV in their, in their residencies and stuff and be able to get into a program. What, do, what attracts a pre-hospital program director to a student interested in this type of thing? And what's involved in their, in their training? Great. So I'll say that the, the traditional um, EMS fellow is an emergency medicine uh, resident graduate. But that's not 100% of the time. There are pediatricians, surgeons, anesthesiologists, and I'm pretty sure at least one family physician who has completed an ACGME-accredited fellowship in EMS medicine. When the fellowship in the subspecialties uh, was created, we specifically left the door open to allow non-emergency physicians to, uh, to get this training. And it's for two reasons. The first is there's not enough emergency physicians to fully staff or to, to fully fill out the workforce of pre-hospital physicians. The second is that many parts of our country are not touched or covered by academic emergency departments, which is where a lot of the EM-trained pre-hospital physicians tend to, um, tend to cover. We expect 911 services to be um, wherever we are in the country. So if I'm in the middle of North Dakota or the middle of Los Angeles, I expect someone to be able to come to my side. And as we talked about in the previous episode, that provider has at least some degree of, of oversight and um, care training done by a physician. And although there are many places that the local doc uh, does what they can to, to help guide those local EMS crews, of course, it would be better if you have someone who's subspecialty trained. So to open the doors for uh, family medicine and internal medicine and everyone else only makes sense, and it only achieves the overall mission, and that is to deliver every citizen the best possible pre-hospital care that we can. So when you ask what a fellowship looks like, um, well, everyone is a little bit different. Like all residencies and training programs, there are core competencies and a um, core curriculum that has to be covered. There are a handful of 
uh, core procedures that must be done, uh, uh, a minimum number of patient contacts as well. But our fellowship in Cincinnati is not identical uh, to any other fellowship in the country. In fact, no two are alike. As we talked in the last episode, though, the way that pre-hospital care is delivered differs from place to place, which means that the fellowship is more naturally going to um, to reflect that local practice pattern. Uh, however, we all strive to be able to prepare our fellows to do anything, any job possible when they finish. So I can tell you that for ours, um, they spend a lot of time with our uh, large urban fire department, Cincinnati Fire Department, to get a good sense of what a busy urban place looks like. And it runs the gamut, uh, as you would imagine. We also partner them with a, with a smaller and at times more nimble uh, suburban fire department where they can be uh, a little bit more in the mix to get things running. Um, it's always easier to, to get known by and, and trusted by a small organization as opposed to a very large one. Uh, University of Cincinnati is also home to, to air care and mobile care, uh, which has been a physician-staffed uh, helicopter EMS service since its inception. So it's a natural fit uh, for them there. So not only do they get to provide even more direct medical care from the sickest of the sick around the, the region before they make it to the hospital, but also it's like to transfer ill patients from one hospital to another and to get a sense of what uh, kind of administration and operations are like in an air-based system. And then we partnered that, of course, with, um, with routine uh, educational and didactic sessions, uh, simulation experience for uh, experiences that we hope to never come across, like resuscitative hysterotomy uh, and field amputation. We integrate them with urban church and rescue teams and SWAT teams and just about everything else that you can imagine. Uh, I joke in that um, we cannot provide cruise ship medicine because I'm in Ohio um, and we do not offer um, true interstellar space pre-hospital medicine. Uh, but if we can find a way to do it, that sounds pretty cool to me. Not- the rest, we at least try to provide some degree of exposure. One thing that we've, uh, to kind of close, that we've put even more emphasis on is working with our 911 dispatchers and our emergency communication centers, which are uh, kind of rephrasing, call them the second responders. Because in many emergencies, whoever calls 911 is the true first responder. Our 911 is our second responder. Our EMTs and firefighters are actually the third responder get to an emergency department or even a pre-hospital physician is the fourth or fifth responder. So uh, we try to push emphasis and training and awareness uh, as far forward as possible. Well, I'll be honest. I cheated a little bit for those listening. I knew about UC's program that was very operationally oriented. And I had also known that there were different uh, degrees to involvement in pre-hospital fellowships. And UC is notable for this um, very hands-on in the field type uh, programming. Um, just so you know, I know a few NASA people, and I'm not sure they know how to do interstellar space. 
yeah, or interplanetary <laughs> space medicine. Yet yeah, they keep having these like uh, high, you know, parabolic flights where they're doing ultrasounds and trying to do appendectomies and stuff. And I think they're still on the learning curve too. So you guys are probably right up there in the in the cutting edge of whatever they're doing too. They're probably looking at your 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 numbers too. So this is an interesting thing for me, Jason, because I have practiced rural emergency medicine. I did that for 15 years, urgent care medicine, intensive care medicine. I've had a broad scope of general family medicine training and practice. So I was able to do those things. Um, What does that, if you do have an FP and you mentioned it, you kind of alluded to it. And the reason why I find it compelling to recommend to FP oriented students at OU that want to practice rural medicine, do pre-hospital medicine is because it seems to me that they're going to get some experience that will help set them up to be able to work a rural ER, a non, a non-level rated, a non-trauma center ER, a, a critical access hospital, some place where they have some familiarity with how to properly stabilize and package a patient for shipment to a receiving hospital. Am I off base there, or, you know, what does the hands-on training look like at UC as far as that fellowship, and what would it do for a primary care-oriented person who wanted to practice rural, me- rural medicine? If you could comment on that. So there's uh, there's a lot of overlaps, and this has to be taken with a grain of salt, and that I have never personally worked in a rural emergency department. So I've, you know, we've loaned to them to uh, to transfer critically ill patients, but I've never spent a day walking in those shoes. So I hope I don't um, uh, misstep out of out of ignorance. You won't. But but pre-hospital medicine um, and uh, uh, disaster medicine and recovery medicine, and rural medicine, cruise ship medicine, and spaceship medicine all have to deal with sick patients in environments where you don't have everything at your disposal. I mean, there is some sort of resource constraint, and sometimes that is um, that is people power, sometimes it is technology, sometimes it is medications, um, and sometimes it's just pure access to care. And there's lessons to be learned uh, by a lot of those. One of the kind of one of the central cores that we talk about um, across the across our fellowship is kind of the the must do aspects of any patient care. Because there's what you want to do, there's what you can do, but then there's what you must do. Because ultimately that patient is going to need definitive care, and we're talking about the, the sickest of the sick. So while we may want to do a lot of interventions, there are interventions that we might do in the emergency department of level and trauma center, doesn't mean that they must be done on the side of the roadway or in someone's living room. So we do, you know, we kind of focus on what we have to without losing the, the bigger picture. On the flip side, and I think that we are uh, we're on the cusp of of seeing this change with with new pilot projects under a new CMS uh, program called ET3. That um, more of it, it's going to kind of swing the other way. We're doing everything that we can do for those that are less ill. I know it is frustrating for for all parties involved that we have one trigger response um, for one point of access for any patient who enters our system. So if a person calls 911, they get 
an EMS response for a medical complaint, and they pretty much have two options. That is to leave them where they are, take them to an emergency department where we can do a lot more. So, you know, as programs develop under the guise of what's been called um, community paramedicine or mobile integrated healthcare, alternatives to, to look at, you know, well, gosh, can this provider use telemedicine to, to adequately take someone, take care of someone in their living room without abandoning them with no more advice than you should call your doctor about that? Can some scopes of practice be extended? Or can we find ways to use um, field physicians to go out and care for the patient, harkening back to the old days of house calls? Well, so so the question I have is is in the in the fellowship program, do you have a a grand rounds type situation where you discuss cases and say along the lines of what you're talking about, this decision making process of who stays, who goes, how much effort do we put into one versus another? Is that part of the fellowship? Is the philosophy of pre hospital medicine and what warrants certain levels and amounts of care, or am I is that part of it in any way? So it certainly is in ours, and I imagine that it is in, in all the others as well, because that's, again, that is part of the backbone of, of the specialty. Um, we are we're providing unscheduled uh, care, often acute, in limited resource environments. And you know, the, the question started with how does this inform kind of rural uh, practice? It's a, it's a pretty direct overlap. And even more important, those rural areas that have Rural emergency departments have rural, often volunteer, often EMT, um, uh, EMS agencies, and to be able to benefit from someone who is subspecialty trained, separately board certified, board certified in the um, in pre-hospital medicine to help guide them and develop uh, the best way to care for your community is a beautiful thing. Yeah, I think so. I, and I, I, I want to make sure I'm not getting too wonkish on this. I mean, because Creighton has a, a MDDO to paramedic program. So uh, you're a physician, you want to become a paramedic or get those qualifications. You do some preparatory work, then you go out to Creighton uh, in Omaha for three weeks for intensive skills and procedures training. And then you do runs with their EMS system until you get to your required 50 or so for your national registry exam. And now you can be qualified as a paramedic. And what I'm wondering is, is are pre-hospital fellowships procedurally oriented, philosophy oriented, or a combination of the two? And how do they differ from, say, a physician who becomes a qualified paramedic to be able to go out as a doctor with paramedic skills and deliver pre-hospital care? Does that make any sense, Jason, what I'm asking? Sure, it does. Um, the, I think that all education is good. And I think a lot has to do with what the end is. I think it would be certainly better for a rural provider um, or anyone for that matter that's going to, to want to beef up on kind of emergency skills and potential oversight of EMS agencies to have some understanding of, of what goes on. Um, so uh, a bridge program like the paramedic program can certainly make sense in certain circumstances. For some people, it may not be enough. For some uh, situations and job expectations, it may not be 
uh, it may not be enough, but it's certainly favored over nothing or experience. As to who and what is capable in the back of an ambulance other than watching it on TV. So, From a fellowship program, what it does allow um, for those people who truly care, um, it is a year and is geared solely at the, the graduate physician and higher, so residency-trained folks to build on all the knowledge that you've, uh, that's come through the, the core training. Of course, a general surgeon, a family physician, and an emergency physician are going to have slightly different skill sets coming in. So there's an opportunity to, to grow when it comes to those skills, like management of the, the uncontrolled airway, um, management of acute trauma, hemorrhage control, um, childbirth, those sorts of, uh, those sorts of problems and, and needs. But then a whole lot more on what it is like to be a physician that oversees pre-hospital care directly or indirectly. And at, in full transparency, I don't know the intricacies of Creighton's program, but those types of, of oversight responsibilities are not traditionally taught in, in our paramedic programs. Yeah, it sounds almost like uh, if I if I would bring up the term an EMS director that that this pre hospitalist is maybe suited to being and working in the capacity of an EMS director. Then maybe is that does that sound right? Yeah. Okay. It does. The you know most of us are are EMS medical directors of, of EMS agencies when we finish. Okay, so let me take my hypothetical family practitioner who's done a great residency. They got great letters of recommendation. Let's say they did a couple of months in emergency medicine rotations and they did an, uh, a critical care, intensive care rotation in their family medicine because they kind of knew they wanted to do this stuff and they want to deal with really sick patients. Is the UC program set up to where, look, you don't have a ton of advanced airway skills or um, you've never done a crike, let's say. Is this something that gets taught to them during this fellowship that they get that they have? You guys can look at their background and say, "Look, we really want you to have a little more experience with advanced airway or with uh, advanced hemorrhage control." What are that? Is that are those elements? Is is the program tailored to each student's deficiencies or strengths as they come in? So, great question. Um, we have thus far only had um, EM trained folks come through. By happenstance and not, not over anything else, we, we welcome interest from that come from um, uh, from an EM training background and still hammer those points. Because it is one thing to provide uh, an advanced airway in a well-lit emergency department where you have um, your first, second, third, and fourth backups available. Something very different to do it on a bathroom floor with a longoscope and a bougie. So um, even though there is there's iterative uh, aspects of each skill, the environment and the resource constraints are are very unique to what we do. So we take everyone through those and make sure that they are up trained enough uh, to do it, regardless of their background. Now certainly. If you have only intubated two people in your life, then we will design and we have the flexibility to get you up to speed so that you are competent. Because let's face it, when you're out in the field with our pre-hospital providers, they're not going to look to you for the easy one. They're going to look to you for the hard one. So we want to make sure that you are able to, 
to step in and, and fill that role. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm compelled about you know airways are airways, right? I mean, that's that's everything, right? So I mean, if you so I think about this and I I bring this up with our med students, and I say we have 18 year old kids that are taught to do cricothyrotomies. Uh, in the army as medics not even as paramedics as medics they're taught to do crikes and i say if you walk out of medical school and you don't know how to do a crike we failed your education that is a basic skill to be able to secure an airway when nothing else is working and you know it's interesting to me as a medical educator seeing how medical curriculums are put together and what priorities are made and i'm naturally inclined towards you know two is one one is none i mean it just you know hurricane katrina what happens when all the power goes out what do you what is your backup plan and we don't do a lot of that training and so it's it's interesting it must be somewhat of a challenge of course you haven't had the breadth of experience yet with the non-er people coming through or em the em emergency medicine residents but how you develop that program over time to look as a career development thing and say where are you weak at what do we need to do to build you up because you're exactly right you know you, the doc shows up in the squad and the paramedics are looking at you and you're looking at them and i learned a long time ago to say look you guys are the ones that are experts at this stuff i i work in a hospital with big lights on you tell me what i can do to help you and so it's interesting i imagine it's a challenge for you as an educator to try to figure out what's the best you can do or build that physician up in that way and i, I do have a question too because there are er fellowships right uh, there's, you know, Scott Weingart uh, in New York as big as a critical ER uh, intensivist. There are these ER fellowships. So what's the difference between an ER fellowship and a pre-hospital fellowship? Or is it just a subset of the various emergency medicine disciplines that people do fellowships in? Is that is that how it works? I'll be honest. I'm not that familiar with, like, fellowships in emergency medicine as far as the core content of emergency medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I don't know from that standpoint, I'm sorry for, for that. No, I, I, I sprung it on you. <laughs> it's okay. Huh? You can't know everything. <laughs> you can't know everything. Plus you just finished an ER shift. Your brain's probably fried. <laughs> sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, okay. So a uh, full stop. Well, okay. So, so interesting. So when you're, and I assume that you've got, depending on where they're coming from, you probably have ER residents that have had more or less experience. I mean, it seems to me there's going to be a fundamental difference between, uh, say, an ER resident that trained in Traverse City, Michigan, way out in the rural middle of nowhere, and an ER resident that trained at Cook County in Chicago in terms of what they've been exposed to. Is that is that fair to assume? So if they come to the fellowship, they're probably going to need some brushing up on various things that they may or may not have been exposed to. Have you found that to be the case? Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, and we have, we have, um, but everyone has their own talent and their own deficiencies, uh, that we're able to, to address. And then, you know, the, there is a component of pre-hospital medicine that is part of the core content of all emergency medicine training programs. So any resident is going to get a little touch of just the pure bare basics of kind of the differences and scopes of practice and levels of training um, and general layout of EMS systems. But it does take at least a solid year um, to really dive deep uh, into the, the true practice of pre-hospital medicine. Mm-hmm. And that's how the fellowships differ, at least from core content of emergency medicine residency programs. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 
what does it what does it look like? Uh, and I may have asked this question. Actually, let me ask this one before I have this written down. Sound sorry, it, it doesn't sound completely professional. But then again, it's I'm on the weekend and my brain's not working completely right either. So forgive me, Jason. But so, what does this do for say disaster medicine or austere medicine? And I'll tell you what informs me on this. When the Boston Marathon, I happen to know this because I have this sort of terribly orphaned paper that I think may be published by a journal you and I are familiar with, which I won't name so I don't jinx myself. But I, I looked at all physicians in Ohio and I asked them what their level of comfort was with hemorrhage control. And I was informed by that by the Boston Marathon bombings where I know for a fact not a single dedicated tourniquet was used, it, even though there were 50-some-odd doctors at the end of the marathon and there were people from the military who'd been deployed. I knew they were deployed because I could tell from their uniforms they'd been deployed. No one used any tourniquets. Real tourniquets. Like, why? Because all those soldiers had to carry one in Iraq. I know for a fact they had to carry one in Iraq on their person. And so when I think about uh, pre-hospital medicine, I think about Hurricane Katrina, I think about man-made natural disasters. What does a pre-hospital fellowship, or if you can speak in the context of UC, do you guys address that? Do you guys address... What do we do when the big hospital isn't there? How do we, because the other thing in I'm, I'm this lead in, the stem is particularly long, so forgive me. But when we look at military medicine, the talk is about prolonged field care, extremely long evacuation times uh, measured in days. So it's no longer magic helicopter comes within an hour and you're suddenly in a surgical suite. It could be two or three days before you get there. Are, is you see, is there a program looking at these things where you have extended extraction how do we manage not just the acute stuff, the hemorrhage, the airway, the circulation problems, but also the more nursing-type care, you know, keeping patients clean, warm, getting them comfortable. I, I can think of a low-angle situation where someone spends a day getting cut out of concrete, like in Haiti. I mean, what, do, what does that resonate with you as far as any training, or is that something completely different? No, it does, and it's, it's something that we certainly touch on. Um, we do work with our uh, regional urban church and rescue team, which is geared towards 12 to 24 hours of observation of um, uh, of action and integration at, at a rescue. We go through the the basics and the fundamentals of, of the different disciplines of, of kind of that urban church and rescue technique, and that includes some wilderness medicine and um, an overland search. In fact, just a couple weeks ago. Uh, one of my partners took our fellows deep in the woods um, to do some a true wilderness medicine day, which was which was fantastic. Mm-hmm. One of my other um, kind of responsibilities, I'm I'm one of the uh, physicians on Ohio Task Force One USAR, where when we do deploy, uh, we deploy for long periods of time, and we're set up to care for multiple patients for a few days at a time. Others of my partners are physicians with. Um, Kentucky One DMAT, which is still a, a disaster uh, response, but a slightly different mission. And in the, um, I want to say in Hurricane Ike, they turned a basketball arena somewhere in Texas to um, basically a 500 bed skilled nursing facility, including um, a large number of bariatric beds. And that team was responsible for providing care to all those evacuated uh, nursing facility patients. So we certainly discuss that and go over um, from case-based learning and tell them to to, code, to cross-train and to explore as much as they can. Um, some of the core content and core requirements are to develop and implement mass casualty 
um, and mass gathering care plans. So we have lots of road races and festivals and sports tournaments uh, in Cincinnati that our fellows partner with us um, to help uh, go through the plan, the emergency action plans, and then implement them on a case-by-case basis because it is a very important thing. Unfortunately, we learn from everything that's around. So um, there's now more hemorrhage control at these mass gathering events uh, than there used to be because several years ago, fortunately, all we had to think about was heat exhaustion and intoxication. Um, And now, unfortunately, we have to think about a whole lot more. Yeah, we do. Jason, I have a few more questions. Um, I, I think we need to do a third segment. You okay with that? That's just fine. Okay, fine. I'm gonna I'm gonna close this off. The next segment may be a little bit shorter. Forgive me, you guys uh, that are listening for that. Normally, I'd like to keep it uh, kind of even and balanced, but I think these are important questions. And as long as Dr. McMillan's willing to entertain me, uh, because um, I just love learning about this stuff, it's really interesting because we're looking at a field of medicine that is evolving rapidly. Again, just for simple things like we live in a different world than we did 50 years ago, uh, and we need to think about bigger things and how we address some of the, the care issues that we've not had uh, in the past to deal with. So uh, at this point, I'm going to thank Dr. McMullen again for his time, and I'm going to thank you for joining us on Rotations. And again, you can get us uh, at Rotations uh, PCAST on Twitter and uh, on Rotations on iTunes. Um, and please leave comments. Be happy to receive them if you have a topic you want to discuss or want us to discuss, I'll hunt them down. Uh, I just reached out to Dr. McMullen because I knew UC had a great program. I sent him an email because I know how to find those on the academic websites, and he was gracious enough to say, I'll give you some of my time, and it's just awesome. Jason, thank you. Uh, I I really appreciate you on this, and uh, we will get you on the third segment, and you can answer these questions I did not pre-script. Thank you, guys. Rotations is an experience in student medical journalism. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communication. Guests on rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations produced by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by League of Champions of All Things Medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted and wildly welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth. In social media, we receive all rights to content. You may use rotation rotation content under the provision of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite rotation as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us at rotationspcast.com or by visiting mediainmedicine.com slash rotations.
YouTube thing called The Noted Anatomist. And it's interesting because he has over 100,000 subscribers. And the reason why I think it's important that um, people like deans of medical schools know uh, about David is because he is teaching your students. And uh, he is. And, uh, and your students are learning from his content. And it is brilliant, and it's lovely, and it's beautifully done. Uh, Dr. Morton has also got the distinction of being a recognized Utah educator, actually a recognized national educator. He has won awards for this. He has an excellent presentation. If you go on and look at his, um, at his content and what people think about it, you will see nothing but glowing reviews about a person who's a dedicated educator and, uh, and someone who really loves the field that he is involved in, which is anatomy. And so we're going to do this interview. I have to tell you, as a listener, uh, I ask, I beg your, your forgiveness for the fact that the audio is probably a little off. We're doing this as a field interview. I actually am in the bunker at the University of Utah. <laughs> the anatomist has no, the noted anatomist no has not a single windows. window, but he does have some tchotchkes and he has some great textbooks <laughs> and he has a, a, a refrigerator that's not got any kind of Diet Coke in it, but he's, he offered a Fresca, which was pretty nice. <laughs> and so with that, I'll introduce uh, David A. Morton, PhD of the University of Utah. Thank you, Todd. Yeah. It's a pleasure. I, I, no, it's my pleasure because I had a chance to ride a train today. I had a chance <laughs> to come to your office and be at, at the U. I had, and I get Mongolian Grill later this evening. Yes, you do. You told me. I am totally stoked the about that. Perfect day. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you tell me as I make unnecessary noises so I have a, a clock? Because people know <laughs> that I never do an episode. I try not to make them any longer than 30 minutes because <laughs> heaven knows that's, the, that's Generation X's attention span. Um, I'm going to put the timer.